Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 19. And uh, a couple weeks ago, we started kind of a two-part series looking at John the Baptist. There are uh, several things that we, we noted about him. Uh, the, the record of John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, uh, we find part of it here in chapter 1 and then part of it in chapter 3. Uh, toward the end of chapter 3. Uh, but we're going to focus this morning on these last verses of John chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and uh, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. 
Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, if you don't know it, today is a special day, October 31st. Many of you might be thinking that I'm referring to the holiday when children dress up and go house to house and and receive candy. And if you do that, it, it probably is a special day for you, but there, there's something much more significant that is commemorated on this day. It happened in the year 1517 when an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther went to the church door and he nailed a list of 95 reasons why he believed the church of his day had been corrupted and needed to be reformed. His goal initially was not to break away and form another church, his own church, but but simply to bring reform to the present church. He wanted them to get back to the truth of God's Word. However, as he sought to carry that out, he was met with such resistance and an unwillingness to engage his complaints that it ultimately led to the formation of Protestant churches. The invention of the printing press, which allowed for the printing of and widespread distribution of the Bible and also of material like these 95 articles or 95 theses that that he wrote, uh, began to spread all over Europe and, and brought about what we call today the Protestant Reformation. This really had massive ramifications that have shaped not, not only the world of the church, the ecclesiastical world, uh, but, but really has shaped all of the world that, that we live in. Everything from political theory and, uh, to, to philosophy. It's no understatement to say that the world in which we now live would not be such as it is were it not for Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, the advances of science and philosophy and the notion of political freedom, which we love so much in in America, all of these things were in part shaped by the events of the Reformation. And if you like history, you could study that and you would see that what I'm saying is, is true. This indeed is an important day and not because you're going to get some candy. But without a doubt, the most significant the most important result of the Reformation is that the doctrine of justification by faith alone was clarified for many people. It was clarified for the masses. In that time, many people had a notion that our human merit, that our effort played some significant role in salvation. So they they would confess that they believed in Jesus Christ, but thought that faith alone in Jesus Christ was not finally sufficient to get you into heaven, was not finally sufficient for you to be declared righteous, to be justified. 
in the thinking of many and the teaching of many of the churches of that day, a person needed to do good works to cooperate with the grace of God. So you receive the grace of God, but then you've got to kind of improve upon it. So you receive the grace, but then you've got to do some good works. And those two things together is ultimately what would lead to your justification. You receive the grace, and then you act upon the grace in faithfulness, and as a result of both of those things, when you stand before God, finally you will be justified. You'll be declared righteous. Well, we know, we're not going to preach a sermon on this today, but hopefully you've been around long enough to know that the Bible teaches that we're justified by faith alone. It is simply by believing and trusting in Jesus Christ that we receive the gift of salvation. It's by faith alone in Christ alone. And for so, so many people, this reformation that occurred was the time when they came to realize this ultimately great and important truth. John, uh, Martin Luther then had a, had a role, we could say, that is analogous to that of John the Baptist. Luther came by God's providence to, to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Remember that this was John's function. We said that there were two things that we find uh, just kind of repeated over and over again. And they, those two words or those two expressions kind of tell us what John the Baptist was, was all about. He came to prepare the way and he did that by bearing witness to Jesus Christ. We won't look through the text, but those, both of those ideas are mentioned over and over again about John. He came to prepare the way for the Messiah by bearing witness to Jesus Christ. Now, John was an utterly unique servant of God who came to do a once-for-all, unrepeatable work by preparing the way for the Messiah. Nobody else can ever do that again. That was a unique work that God had for John the Baptist. But ever since then, believers have shared in a lesser way, yet a, yet a very, uh, still a very significant work of bearing witness to Jesus Christ. And Luther was one of those who followed the model of John. He was appointed by God in his divine plan to be a servant who would proclaim the gospel of salvation by faith alone in Christ. And so it is today, over 2,000 years since the time of John the Baptist, and over 500 years since the time of Martin Luther, we are here today, and you and I, like John the Baptist, in, in an analogous way, and like Martin Luther, we have a task to bear witness about Jesus Christ. Oh, we, we may not, uh, in God's re redemptive plan, obviously John, John was unique, and, and Luther probably had a, a greater work to do uh, than, than any of us, yet to recognize that is not to minimize the task to which we are called. You see, bearing witness to Christ and pointing others to Him is never insignificant. It is never unimportant. And Jesus is worthy of our efforts, whether we are uh, sort of this some, something like John the Baptist or we play some important role like, like Martin Luther. So we, we see great results. No matter what, whether we see those results or not, whether we have this kind of great status and are remembered in history or not, uh, the, the fact remains that we are called to bear witness to Jesus Christ, and that is 
significant. We, we said that John provides something of a pattern for us to follow in bearing witness to Jesus Christ. Uh, if you remember that a couple weeks, uh, weeks ago, uh, John, although he's unique, we, we can emulate what he did in bearing witness to, to Christ. And I said that there were, there were four things that we recognized in the ministry of John the Baptist, four things that we can emulate as we go about the work of bearing witness to Jesus Christ. The first is the manner, and that's what we focused on two weeks ago, the manner, which is, uh, the, the, really could be summarized by the statement of John the Baptist uh, when he said, he must increase and I must decrease. The, the manner in which John the Baptist went about was recognizing I'm nothing, I'm not important, I'm not the focus of all of this, Christ is, and so that's what I want to do. I want to make little about myself but, but I want to be used to make much about Jesus Christ, and we need to emulate that. We're called to that kind of humility. As we go out proclaiming the gospel, we're not here to, to build up the reputation of any man or any woman or any institution as uh, uh, like our, our, our church. We're, we're here to make much of Jesus Christ, and, and we need to keep that mindset uh, in in the front of our minds as we go about bearing witness to Christ. So the manner. And now this morning what I want to focus on is the final three of those. Really I want to focus most of all on the message, uh, but then toward the end we'll talk about the mark and the method. So what is the message? What I'm saying here is that the message that John proclaimed is the message that we are to proclaim as well. John provides the substance of our message. And when we look to John, what we see is that he was absolutely clear in, in his message that he proclaimed. We don't get long sections of, of his teaching from, from John the Baptist, but, but in the short glimpses that we get, just a, a few verses in chapter 1, a, a few verses toward the end of, of chapter 3, but, but just in that short little window that we have into the life and the ministry of John the Baptist, what we see is absolutely crystal clear. You see, John was not interested in, in building a crowd for himself. He, he wasn't interested in becoming a, an influencer or gaining notoriety or fame. That wasn't his message. John was not focused on getting some political movement going. He could have easily done so with the, the makeup of the society in that time, the culture, but he doesn't do that. He does exercise a prophetic role in calling out the sin of Herod, but he, but he isn't interested in kind of overthrowing Herod and, and bringing in some kind of new regime. So his message was not political. He had a singular message, and the message of John the Baptist was that he was here to proclaim Jesus Christ. And he didn't get off message. He didn't divert into this lane or that lane. Uh, he didn't mix the message at all. It's absolutely crystal clear. He came to proclaim Jesus Christ and to point others to him. And we see, as we look at the proclamation of John the Baptist, we see three things that he said about Jesus. The first is that Jesus is the Son of God who existed eternally. He's the Son of God who existed eternally. 
Now, we've already seen, haven't we, that the, that the writer, the Gospel of John, the, the Apostle John, uh, when he wrote the, the Gospel, he's already said many of those things in the introduction. Those were the words of the Apostle John. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Uh, the, he says that, uh, that the Son, the Word, created all things. Uh, the Word was with the Father in the beginning. He's, he's eternal. Uh, and so forth and, and so on. And so we, we've already seen that, but now what we're looking at is in particular the words of John the Baptist. What did John say about Jesus? And when we, we, when we go there, we, we find that the Gospel writer indicates that John the Baptist's message was quite similar to his own. Look at verse number 27 again. He says here and, and starts off with pointing to the greatness of of Jesus Christ. Verse 27, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. We might ask ourselves the question though, why would John the Baptist say that Jesus is so great? What was it about Jesus that, that made him so great and so glorious that John says, hey, there's this really menial task of untying somebody's shoes and I'm not even worthy to touch his feet. I'm not even worthy to take off his shoes. Was it because Jesus was a great preacher? Was it because uh, Jesus, uh, uh, you know, had some amazing gifts or, or something like that? No, he tells us the answer in verse 30. We see this in verse number 30. He says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me. He's greater than me. That's what John's already said. Why? And he gives us the answer. Because he was before me. He existed before me. And, and we notice, and I've said this before, but, but obviously John the Baptist was older than Jesus. We get that in the narratives and the other Gospels. John the Baptist was six months older than, than Jesus. So why is John the Baptist saying, Jesus is greater than me, and I'll tell you why he's greater than me, because he existed before I existed when John the Baptist in his humanity and Jesus in his humanity, uh, John was six, six months older than Jesus. Well, what he's pointing us to is he's pointing out the fact that Jesus was pre-existent. When Jesus was born, that wasn't the beginning of his existence. That isn't when he came into existence. No, he, he existed eternally. And, and at his birth, he was only coming into uh, human form. He was taking on humanity. But that was not where the life of the Son of God began. He was in the beginning with the Father. And John is recognizing that. The fact that Jesus is eternal, which is an attribute of God alone, right? God is the only one who's eternal. And now, and now John is saying that this man, who is the Son of God, he is eternal. And because of that, it means that he's God and he ranks before me. How did John the Baptist know this truth? How, how did he reach this conclusion? He had been around. His family knew of the birth of Christ. What would lead John the Baptist to make the claim that Jesus, the Son of God, existed before him, that he was eternal? Well, maybe the Gospel writer got it wrong. Maybe he records John's words incorrectly. But we know that the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, uh, was a disciple of John the Baptist, if that's not confusing to you. Uh, two Johns, one wrote the gospel, the other is John the Baptist. The writer of the gospel, John, was a disciple 
of John the Baptist. So he was in a perfect position. In fact, he's one of the two that was standing there and hearing John proclaim these things when, Jesus, when John said, this is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. John was there. He, he knew the message. And so John, the Gospel writer, we know has clearly uh, explained what John the Baptist was preaching. He, he was in the perfect position to know it. How did John the Baptist know that Jesus was eternal? Why is he saying that? Well, some have suggested that maybe John the Baptist didn't really fully understand all that he was saying. That, that he says something here, uh, but, but he kind of speaks better than he knows. And sometimes that does happen in Scripture. Sometimes someone will say something, and what they say is true in a much greater way than they even understand in the moment. But I don't think that's the case with John the Baptist. It's clear that John the Baptist had been given divine revelation. Look at verse number 33. He says, I myself did not know him. Now, John the Baptist didn't know Jesus. What he's saying here in verse 33 is not that he didn't know him at all. He's saying, I didn't know that he was the son of God. I didn't know him in this capacity. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, who sent John the Baptist to baptize with water? God did. And so God had delivered this task to John the Baptist. He said, this is what I want you to do. And, and God had revealed to John the Baptist the identity of Jesus Christ so that John the Baptist could prepare the way by bearing witness to Jesus Christ. He received a message from God about who Jesus is and what he was going to do. And then he went forth and proclaimed it. How did John know that Jesus was the eternal Son of God because God revealed it to him. And so we see this here, that, that it was given to him by divine revelation. It's clear that John understood the majesty and the glory of the eternal Son was because it was revealed to him by God. But this wasn't the only thing uh, that, that was shown to him. Secondly, we see that Jesus is the Messiah who, who gives the Spirit. He's the Messiah who gives the Spirit. So we saw first that He's the Son of God who existed eternally, and now John the Baptist tells us that Jesus is the Messiah who gives the Spirit. Look at verse 32 again. John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remained on Him. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now this baptism is a, a unique and a symbolic uh, importance. The other Gospel writers actually narrate the story of Jesus coming to the water and being baptized and the, the uh, dove coming down, the Spirit in the form of the dove coming down and resting on Jesus. But you notice in the Gospel of John, what we just read, there's no narration of the events. It's just simply John recounting this and really telling us something of the significance of it. So this is really an, an important thing. We're getting a glimpse. The other Gospels, you see what happened. And now John is telling us this is why it happened. This is what was going on. And he tells us here that this has something of a, a symbolic uh, importance. It shows us a couple things about Jesus. First of all, it shows us that Jesus possessed the Spirit. And one person says this, it, it doesn't mean that he had formerly been destitute of the Spirit, but because he might be said 
to be then consecrated by a solemn rite. So, so God is here displaying this Jesus, this Messiah, he's going to be one who possesses the Holy Spirit in a unique way. When you go back to the Old Testament, you will find that God often gave his spirit to people who were about to do very important works. So in the Old Testament, kings were anointed. We see Saul, the Spirit of God comes on Saul and on, on the kings. The Spirit of God will come on prophets. And, and the Spirit kind of empowers them for this task that God has called them to do. But then it doesn't seem to be any kind of permanent thing. It, it comes and goes. The, the Spirit of God left Saul. David, when he sin, sins against God, he says, God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. What is he saying there? He's recognizing you've empowered me to be a king and I've sinned against you and I pray, don't take your spirit. I can't do this task without you. And so this is what's happening with Jesus at the waters when he's being baptized. God is saying, hey, I'm consecrating him to do a unique work. The spirit of God has come upon him in a special way. But, but Jesus was utterly unique in, in his relationship with the spirit. It's showing us here that, that he had the Spirit with a fullness. Uh, there was nothing lacking. He, he had the Spirit with, with all of its fullness. And, and there's a permanency as well. As I said in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon somebody for a particular time uh, and then perhaps depart. But when it comes to Christ, he receives the Spirit fully and permanently. But then we see not only does he possess the Spirit, but that he will pour out the Spirit. In verse number 33, John says of Jesus and, and telling us the significance of what, what's this all about? The Spirit descending like a dove on Jesus when He's baptized. What's that all about? Well, verse 33, it says, He it is who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In other words, not only does Jesus possess the Spirit for the work that He's called to do, but then He's going to pour out the Spirit on his people. He's going to dispense the Spirit in a unique and special way as never has been done before at, at his ascension. The work of, of pouring out the Spirit was something that was prophesied in the Old Testament. We see in Isaiah 44, verse 3. It says, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. It's, you get the picture right here. It's like water. The Spirit is, is a metaphor, an analogy that's being used. And God's saying, I'm going to pour out my Spirit upon your descendants, upon your children. And in Joel, the same picture is given. Joel 2.27, the Lord says, I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And what John is saying now about Jesus is not only did He receive the Spirit, not only did He possess the Spirit for the work that He was called to do, but, but Jesus was going to be the one who actually dispensed the Spirit upon God's people. What does that say about Jesus? If in the Old Testament, it's the Lord says in Joel, I, the Lord, am going to pour out my Spirit on my people, upon all flesh. And now John the Baptist says, hey, this is Jesus, the Son of God. He's the one who's going to baptize. He's the one who's going to pour out the Spirit. What does that say about Jesus? Well, it tells us that He's divine, and it tells us He's the Messiah. He's the one who's going to bring about 
and effectuate the promises of God. He's the one that's going to carry out what God has done, which is exactly what John, the gospel writer, has said about Jesus, isn't it? That, that he was the agent of creation. You see, that's what Jesus does. He, he carries out the work of God. He's the word of God who, who does what God speaks. And now we have this again. He's the one who's going to bring the spirit of God and pour it out on his people. And so Jesus is the Messiah who pours out the Spirit. Thirdly, Jesus is the Lamb of God who atones for our sin. He's the Lamb of God. What was the message of John? Well, it was all about Jesus. It, it was about Jesus being divine because He's e eternal. Uh, he's the Messiah because He's pouring out the Spirit. And He's the Lamb of God who atones for our sin. Look at verse 29. The next day, He saw Jesus coming toward Him. This is John the Baptist speaking. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again in verse 35, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now this is a description of Jesus that is richly tied to the Old Testament. I told you in our introductory sermon that all of John is just is so rich with allusions to the Old Testament. And this is one of those allusions, and it's one of those allusions that you don't have to work very hard to see. It's one of those allusions that's very clear. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It reminds us of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. The sacrificial system was instituted by God in the law given to Moses. And in that system they were to offer sacrifices to God to bring about forgiveness the the lamb represented a, a substitute so the priest would would bring the lamb and the priest would lay his he hands on the head of the lamb and pray over the lamb confessing the sins of the people as he had his hands laid upon the head of the lamb and then the lamb would be led to the slaughter to die symbolically bearing the judgment of God for the sins of the people and God did this for His Old, Old Testament people. He, he gave them sort of a living illustration to do yearly, every year. Keep doing this. And what I want you to see in this is that my grace toward you, the fact that I keep forgiving you again and again and again and showing grace to you again and again and again, that ain't free. It costs something. There's a price for you to receive my grace and my forgiveness. The righteousness of God required that His justice be satisfied and that the price be paid for their sin. And so the Lamb did that, but, but only symbolically. We know that Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 tells us that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So, so this, whole, this whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament was all merely symbolic. God was showing patience. God was showing grace. But He was showing them someone's going to have to pay. Someone is going to have to bear the price for your sins in order for you to receive this. And so it points us to the sacrificial system. But secondly, it points us to the sacrificial servant. Because the sacrificial system was not a true remedy for sin, God prophesied toward the old, end of the Old Testament in Isaiah 53, God prophesied that He would send His servant. 
who would, like the sacrificial lamb, bear the sin of the people, but this time he would actually bring about forgiveness. He, he would actually and truly bear the sins of the people. You might be familiar with Isaiah 53. I won't read the whole thing, but verse 5 says this, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And now John takes it from this type to the truth. And he sees Jesus there by the, by the riverbank as John is baptizing and everyone's there, the crowd's gathered around him. They all know the sacrificial system. They've all been offering sacrifices their entire life. They understand what's going on there. They all, under, they all knew Isaiah 53 about this suffering servant who would bear the, the sins of God's people. They all understood that. And now John sees Jesus walking by and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John Chrysostom says, of this passage, he says, he calls Jesus the Lamb to remind the Jews of Isaiah's prophecy and the shadow of the Mosaic law and to lead them from the type to the truth. The ancient lambs did not entirely take away sin from anyone. The Lamb, this Lamb, took away the sin of the whole world. You see, those were types, those sacrifices in the Old Testament. And there was a prophecy in Isaiah 53. And now John is here to announce and, and to declare, this is the substance. This is the reality that all of this has been building for. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just listen to that. He's, he's the Lamb of God. Think about that. God is the one who's been offended. We're the ones in, in, in normal thinking, right, that, that would need to bring a lamb. We're the ones who would need to pro provide something to bear the cost of our sins. But Jesus is the Lamb of God. God Himself has provided the sacrifice so that we could be forgiven. And He's the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. But behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a beautiful picture if you stop and think about it. Again, I told you about the, the lamb. Symbolically, what was happening is it's, it's as if when the priest was praying over the lamb, the, the sin was, was taken from us, taken off of our head or the head of God's people and, and placed on this lamb. And He was the one that now bore the sins. And that's what Jesus has done. He, he takes away our sins. We don't, have, we don't have them anymore. We're not responsible for them anymore. We don't carry the weight of our sin anymore because our sin has been placed on Jesus Christ and He died in our place to bear the wrath and the judgment of God. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we can be thankful that we don't bear our sin anymore. And this is the message then. 
What, what's the message that we have? The message that we have to preach is that Jesus is the divine Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, that God sent Him into the world to be the Messiah and, and to pour out His Spirit, and God sent Him as well to be the Lamb who would, who would die in our place. This is the message that we are to proclaim. Let me ask you this morning, if people were to summarize the message of your life, what would it be? For John, it was clear. I mean, we just have a few verses, but the Gospel writer can so clearly articulate the message of, of John the Baptist's life. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What, what would your message be? Behold, look at the wealth I've accumulated. Behold, look at my accomplishments. Behold, here's my political philosophy. Behold, you need to get your life together and act morally upright. For many of us, if people were to characterize what they think about us or what describes our life, the message of our life, it might be one of those things or, or, or something entirely different. But the question is, when people think of us and, and the message that we proclaim, what, what they know is sort of the heartbeat of our life, it ought to be that we're pointing people to Jesus Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's individually, but what about us as a church? We as a church need to keep fighting to keep Christ and his, this message that He's the Lamb of, of God at the center of our proclamation. You know, there are a thousand things that will vie for the attention of a church. A, a message of morality, hey, just act better, be good people, be morally upright people. A lot of churches get sidetracked with that message. And they no longer are proclaiming that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Some churches have become political. And politics has become their message. And when the world thinks about them, what do they think? All oh, their evangelical Christians who are support this and this and this and they're, they're voting for this and they really want you to vote for this. That's not our message. We, we've gotten off topic. Is it morality or politics or entertainment some churches have become consumed with entertaining so that they can get more and more people and they can draw massive crowds but but too often they're drawing massive crowds and failing to give them the message to look to the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world entertainment psychology and self-help come and and i just heard this week maybe you heard it it was all over Social media, there was a, uh, a pastor uh, who has failed to proclaim that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he was telling people, when you follow Jesus, he doesn't really change your life. He just makes you a better you. Right? What nonsense. What, what, first of all, it's just false. That, that isn't what the message of Christianity is. We're, we're called to point people to Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. This is the message that the world needs to hear. It's the message that the world needs to hear. But listen to this, it isn't the message they always think that they need to hear. In fact, most often it isn't the message they think they need at all. That Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away their sin. A.W. Pink noted, it's an interesting contrast when you look at the, the Jewish people who came to, uh, to John the Baptist they knew something was going on and they wanted to figure out, what's going on here, John? Who, who are you? And, and 
what they ask about, the figures that they ask about, kind of tells what their thinking was. Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet like Moses who was to come? Do you see what they're looking for? They're looking for a miracle worker who can do great things, or they're looking for a political leader that could lead them out of bondage. But but when John points to Jesus Christ, he doesn't point to any of those things. He says, look, this is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. You see, they didn't realize that, that, this, that their sin was their greatest problem. The people of that day didn't recognize that their true problem was sin. They thought it was a political problem. They thought it was a social problem. They thought it was a physical problem. And they wanted a Messiah to bring political freedom or societal peace or physical healing and provision. And here's what you need to know. Jesus ultimately does those things, but what they didn't recognize is that the source of all those problems is first of all our sin, and until our sin gets dealt with, the social problems, the political problems, the physical problems can never be dealt with. And so Jesus comes, and He is going to bring peace. And He is going to rule over His people. And He is setting up a kingdom. And He will give you inner peace and all of those things. But the way that He brings that about is by being the Lamb of God who deals with your sin. You see, your sin is the source of all those problems. You can't treat the, 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 the uh, problem over here unless you get to the heart of it. Unless you get down to the true source. Started to say, you can't deal with the symptoms until you get to the cause and and that's what jesus did the cause of our problem is sin and so jesus comes as the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world and that's what as it is today same thing that it was in jesus day the world cannot imagine that their sin is the source of their suffering the world in our day they, they don't realize that they, don't, they look around us, why is it so messed up? Why are politics a mess? Why, why is there so much division in the world? Why, why do people get sick and die? Why do people struggle with, with psychological problems? What's, what's the deal with all of this? But they could never imagine that their sin is the source of that problem. And then because of that, they look to other remedies. The world cannot imagine either that there is a God whose justice demands that our sins must be punished. They can't think, if there is a God, He's a God that's like an, an old grandpa that just overlooks all your faults. They cannot imagine that there's a God who demands that their sins be atoned for and who will bring judgment on them. They can't imagine, as John is going to say a little later in the Gospel of John, that the wrath of God remains on them right now if you're here today apart from jesus christ if you by faith have not received jesus christ as the atoning sacrifice of your sins the wrath of god abides on you and your problem and the world that you live in is full of problems and it's all because of your sin and, and guess what it gets worse because as i've said the wrath of god is abiding on you and he's going to bring you into judgment in the future and so I would encourage you this morning, look to the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have our work cut out for us this morning. 
The world's true problem is sin, and the remedy is the Savior, the Lamb of God. Church, we need to stay on message. They talk about that in politics, don't they? Don't get off message. You, you got a message, stick to it. That's our message. Let's not get off message. Let's not point people to our politics. Let's not point people to psychological help, self-help. Let's not point people to trying to make them a, a better person now. Let's point them to the Savior. That's what they need. That's what they need more than anything. The message that we have is that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that you so loved the world, that you so loved us, that you gave your only begotten Son to die on the cross for us, to bear your wrath as the Lamb of God. We thank you that because of him, we can be forgiven, that our sins can be carried away from us, taken away from us, that they can be buried in the depths of the ocean, or as one prophet says, they, they can be cast behind your back, that you have forgotten them. Not that you could truly forget anything, but Lord, you have chosen not to see us in our sin. We've been forgiven truly and really through Jesus Christ. I pray this morning, Lord, if there is one here who has never believed in Christ, that they have never put their faith in Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away their sin, I pray that you would open their eyes to believe that this morning and to trust in Him. I pray for us as a church that you would help us not to be diverted in the thousands of other topics that we could get off on, but, but that we would stay resolutely focused on this message of proclaiming Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Help us to be like the Apostle Paul who said that I've determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Help us to be that kind of church and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.